This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So this is the time for the talk. I'd like to say that um, of the Donna, I'd like to offer half of it to um, a charity that will be helping in India. I haven't picked the one, but CNN published several of them the other day. So that together we'll be hopefully benefiting people who are suffering. I mean to talk about the hindrances and that last part of the invitations was a kind of investigation in the way that I would language it to see if you found any of them. No, did did anyone find one? I found I found a few. <laughs> Sometimes if you invite them, they're kind of subtly come present. Um, yeah, and maybe that's the main part of the talk already there. That um, I had some hesitation in giving a talk. I haven't given one in some time, and I always wonder really how to teach and how to teach and be effective um, to remind us as practitioners that remaining kind of experiential is really important. Nevertheless, I figured out that I would give one a talk. I'd like to start it with um, a poem that I found called Offering by someone named Harry Newman. It's in a, it was in a 2015 edition of a poetry magazine that I was about to recycle, and then I found it. Um, it used to be one mendicant. Now there are three. Bowls to their sides, walking single file in the direction of the station. They move together without interrupting the flow around them. Their even steps more like gliding, as if the world truly were illusion, or they were, or both. Two dreams blurring through each other to a dream larger still. And I remember the mornings then, well before sunrise, alone in the street walking the dog. I'd see the oldest one coming out of the darkness toward me as if he'd been crossing the city, endlessly taking the measure of the night. Are we more blessed by three now or more in need? I wonder as two Thai people near the corner, the only ones who notice, bow before them, hands together, one kneeling almost to the ground and rising to give their offerings a quart of soup and rice. The mendicants stop and whisper to them, Back in the world for a moment, a street in Queens, cars honking, planes overhead, the shop beside them selling platanos while the rest of us continue in the stream, having only ourselves left to offer the day, the city, this illusion of our lives. Well, just for purposes of explanation, I, you know, I love the poem because it respects 
the Asian roots and the renunciates who have held the tradition as teachers for so much time and um, from whom the teachings have come to us as lay people, and also how the poet as a lay person comes to a kind of insight at the end of the poem from just from close observation of the behavior of someone else, in fact, of the mendicants. And speaking of uh, the poet, not speaking of himself, but of us, that we only have ourselves left to offer to the day of the city and the illusion of our lives. And the word illusion there is an interesting one. Um, I'd like to suggest that we do live in illusions sometimes, which is part of what this talk is about. But also when I read that word, the sense is that the poet was struck by this moment of insight of the interconnection of the poet's life and everyone's life who was described at the dog or the monks or those who are offering. And it sounds very dry in Dharma to say dependent upon conditions, but in the moment of insight, the illusion it opens up in a kind of tender and beautiful, kind of open, liberated way um, to see the arising and passing away of experience in this way. So we only have ourselves to offer to this. And my feeling of wanting to offer to you some of the pointers and reminders that are valuable from the teachings and that have been valuable for me, especially during this time, you know, it's, it can almost sound redundant to talk about this time, but it has been a period that's for the history books and elevated levels of change. And if we ourselves are not suffering tremendously, we have to know that other people are. And it may be that some of us have suffered much more than usual in the past year through the loss of loved ones or um, different kinds of shifts in your um, circumstances that are challenging. Um, having kids at home, trying to um, keep them in school or keep them attentive to their Zooms. I think some of them may be back at school now, but still people have gone through quite a bit. And as a society, a lot has come out a lot that's been difficult and painful. The other day, a friend of ours was, my husband's and mine, was telling us about a mutual acquaintance who had done something like really embarrassing and toxic and really uncharacteristic of them. And it was a person that we know was always kind of challenged in so many ways, like a person who was difficult and who had a lot of difficulties. And they did something um, that they ended up kind of on the internet for, like some explosion of really you know, terrible behavior. And I thought, it, I, I can't help but think that their, their vulnerability was exacerbated by the times that we're going through. I mean, it really was not a good thing that they did. <laughs> Today, I was on hold for three hours while writing this talk because um, I had, we're going to New York to take some possessions to uh, my husband's daughter because she's moving into a house. And the rental car got accidentally canceled. And then there were hardly any employees to try to fix it and they couldn't fix it. And I was on hold all this time and listening to the difficult music and the rental car company is in bankruptcy. Half the staff has been fired and yet uh, speculators are buying the stock like crazy. 
even though the company's called a dead man walking this by business analysts. It's, it's a funny time. I felt sorry for the operators and I ended up being able to resolve the situation, but um, it was a little bit unusual and it's also not so unusual now. So it's as if the times have been a little bit like a kaleidoscope and that sometimes it feels a lot more stressful and that we need to understand that under these kinds of stresses of historic epidemic proportions that sometimes we might feel more susceptible to hindrances or bad behavior or sadness or you know feelings like grief. And yet our practice offers um, ways of moving through this life as it is, through this life and this death as it is. The way they say that, the way the poet said of the monks, uh, the mendicants, as if the world truly were illusion, or they were, or both. Two dreams blowing through each other to a dream larger still. In the Tibetan tradition that I've practiced in quite a bit, um, they often talk about not clinging to things as real. And what that means, I believe, is kind of a conceptual reality that, you know, that it's, I really, like, am Kate Leela Wheeler. <laughs> when, if you look at, our, at your experience, there's something kind of indeterminate about that, or Kate Leela Wheeler can be one way in the morning and a different way in the evening. And knowing that the divisions between self and other are not so strong, um, really, and that what happens in other parts of the world affects us and um, stuff like that. The practice of sati or mindfulness is something that the outer conditions cannot necessarily take away from us. The practice of being able to be aware of our experience here and now. And it's wonderful to me because it's just awareness of reality of the things that we do and see every day, like walking the dog or um, moving in and out of doorways or talking to someone. And there's so much that we take for granted and we kind of go through it automatically and we are not so much paying attention and we're not so much being present. Lack of attention and lack of being present is also part of our experience, right? I mean, when we're rushing or um, maybe just driving or stuff like that, like I think we all as... I just like to say as a human being, I will confess that I am mindless quite a lot of the time, unless I'm, unless I'm not, <laughs> unless I remember the practice. And lack of attention and lack of presence is kind of the root of all of the things called hindrances that I'll be talking about. Lack of attention mixes us up with all kinds of things. Lack of being present the most beginner of meditators knows how quickly the mind can get itself into really big trouble, knows how quickly um, the attention can get swept into habits of just thinking about stuff. Sometimes it, I might sit down and um, 20 seconds later, I realize that I'm not anywhere near my experience. 
Now, this is an insight that often causes distress for new meditators or medium meditators or older med meditators, but it's actually a, a realization or an understanding of um, how our minds are. So part of the practice of recognizing the hindrances is noticing how much we are swept away and how we live in the concepts and ideas of things. And a very basic understanding of what concepts and ideas are, are that they're representations of the things that they're describing. So they're never quite the actual thing, right? So, you know, if I mention an apple or a flower um, to you, you all know what I'm talking about, but the apple or the flower in the mind of each person might be a little bit different. So in the end, maybe we're not talking about the same thing. And also if we are living in the concept of the apple, we don't, um, we don't so much realize that that sets up a certain amount of sort of stress um, in the mind too. Because we're living in the representation rather, in the rather than in the reality and we can start to get disembodied Often I'll come to my computer to take care of the email um, and I'll say to myself, uh, I only want to spend 20 minutes like handling everything. So I have a little kitchen timer like that I set for 20 minutes. And it's such a, been such a common experience that I don't even hear it go off <laughs> because I've gotten so uh, into the zone of what's going on in the email and the computer and the, you know, of course, I've probably clicked on a couple of ads or some interesting news stories or written a sort of like um, detailed letter to someone because I'm thinking about something and it feels exciting to communicate. And then it's 11 o'clock and I haven't eaten breakfast. <laughs> that kind of thing um, can happen. So what is it in our, ex in our experiential mind that will help us kind of come back if we can agree even tentatively that we value sati or being present or being experiential, which is something that um, I'll, I will talk about a little bit more, but just take it as an assumption now that um, if we value this state of being present and really alive in our lives to what's happening, some clarity about what it is and the value and some diligence are required some kind of practice is required, some kind of training of this mind, this wayward little mind that I think you have one and I have one. So, um, you know, you may be less wayward than I am, but um, this mind that I have is still quite wayward. So this sati means being present. Um, and also once you've activated, it can also be very relaxing into just being with just this, just as, just as it is. The description is that we are present in the body, that we're present with what's difficult and what's easy and what's kind of blah or neither nor, which is its own thing, that we notice and be present for what our mind and heart may be doing, and that we're noticed and are present for a certain kind of sets of mental qualities, which is uh, where the hindrances fall, like whether we're in a state of feeling deprived because we desire something different or stewing over some 
problem that we have, real or imagined, large or small. Sometimes the stewing is not always in proportion to the size of the problem, but sometimes it is. Um, or restless or sleepy or doubting. But for lay people, um, arguably, mind and dharmas are a good object because we're not in retreat and our minds kind of need to be active. So it's quite good to um, be able to see the qualities of what's going on. The 14th Gyalwang Drukpa Rinpoche talks about sati in this way as if it were appreciation. Without appreciation, our life is like plastic. Not only do we need to remove non-biodegradable rubbish from our external environment, we also need to clear it from our mind too. This is the way that leads to sustainable happiness. So respecting the complexity of everything that happens in our minds and our emotions, you know, um, sometimes I think there could be a million hindrances, like every, <laughs> every difficult mental state is, could be called a hindrance. And I'm not always that interested in boiling it down into one of the five. I think uh, some of the lists can be, you know, they're helpful, but we don't want to get stuck in the list. And the other thing is, I wouldn't want to think that every feeling or emotion or every strong emotion or even every difficult mental state is a hindrance. What is it that qualifies something as a hindrance um, is, might be a good in investigation for each of us. It's talked of as when it feels, when it is toxic or when it leads to harm. You know, one example is like, why do we tell a lie to someone? Do we want to look better or do we want to get away with something? Are we embezzling? Um, are we trying to relieve ourselves of consequences? Um, you know, and how harmful are, are the lies that we tell sometimes? But um, I invite you to look at your mind and try to see when uh, it's harmful. Uh, to itself or to others. Arguably, in daily life, we pass through quite a lot of different mental states. I start meditating usually at nine in the morning, and I often feel that a lot has happened already by then. You know, I've watered the plants, I've done this and that. Um, I've often had like different experiences, dreams, conversations, all kinds of stuff. Disliking things, craving things, uh, wondering what's for breakfast, all that stuff. There's plenty to look at. But I'd like to sort of also say that the hindrances um, or the mental states that are described as hindrances often contain a lot of information um, so that we don't want to kind of overlook them or just be disgusted that we have them and try to pretend that we don't or that kind of thing. That's, that denial isn't really very useful. One of the things that's common to the what are called the hindrances is that um, it's hard to see them. Like it's much easier to easier to be in them than to be aware of them. So it's a refinement of our practice of mindfulness to be able to uh, see the hindrances or kind of. Let's say I wake up some morning and I feel a little bit moody, and if I'm not aware of how my mind is. It will just seem that this is how it is. 
you know, that it's a gray and ugly day outside and, um, you know, the sink isn't very clean. <laughs> and maybe my life has been a great futility all this time and I'm at the end of the road and it's like, I'm old, <laughs> you know, all these kinds of things. If I'm not really able to be aware that, oh, this is a mental state and it's actually, you know, it's, it's not helpful for me to be quite so stuck in this. So myself investigating what's a hindrance, it's when I'm kind of stuck in it and it's harmful. Um, and I like how the Drukpa, Drukchen calls it uh, non-biodegradable because it has that element of being a little bit fixated, you know, stuck there. Now, the Buddha, when he taught about the hindrances, mentioned uh, different metaphors, ways of seeing the mind. And let's say the clear, aware, present mind is like clear water. And I know Shaila told me that you're, this sangha is very familiar with the hindrances and similes about the hindrances and said that it was fine to speak about them and that you would feel um, also maybe enriched and stable because you already know them well. But a desiring mind um, is sometimes compared to an indebted mind, something that hasn't quite been paid off, like I'm not complete. But it's also compared to a, a, the water that's been dyed pink or made prettier, so that maybe you don't even really see that the clear water is there. You just start getting flipping out about the color and thinking it's so great and how can all the water in my house be pink or even champagne kind of thing? Um, I have an example though of, um, I have a backyard and last summer we had some socially distanced healthy parties back there with, um, we had a little fire pit and sometimes we'd stay up late and sitting in our lawn chairs, looking at the fire. It was really a very sweet kind of experience. And, Nevertheless, the fire pit burned part of the lawn or it kind of made this bald spot, which is still there in the spring. So that's an unpleasant thing. And I also feel like it's hurting the grass and stuff. So I start thinking about um, this and that. And pretty soon on the internet, uh, I coincide with this special kind of fire thing that won't hurt the grass, right? Um, it has legs, It uh, you can cook on it too. It's not all that pretty, but it's kind of like it would save the grass. But then another hindrance comes up because a little bit of fear because it's quite expensive. It's like more expensive than I think is worth it. I think I'll just put the fire pit on the grass until it goes on sale. So actually this fire pit has been dancing in my mind, you know, for quite a while. It's 20% off and for the next 24 hours, if you buy it now, this will create all this kind of happiness and what I see is in the desire of this, I was protected by the cringe of um, the unsafety of spending too much on it. And the desire to not burn the grass isn't wrong, but how much time do I want to spend like going to the website and how do I get tired looking at like the little legs on it and like, is it really pretty? And then I kind of realized that the internet functions as a kind of hindrance generator because um, these companies and this, these websites also would like to generate a state of desire in me. So it's, I'm not even really independent of what's going on. The ad has slipped all through my email. 
uh, to let me know that there's a 24 hour sale. So um, do I want to be in this state? I'm, and this is really not the worst kind of desire and greed. I mean, we only have to look at our world to see um, what goes on out there. Like one, there's somebody in a city near me who was charging $250,000 to approve of the next pot shop as a bribe, like requiring people to um, give them a bribe in order to, to exercise their municipal functions. Anyway. Um, and to just give the example of the fire pit is relatively innocuous. I think um, we all may have goals or desires or objectives, uh, either for our balance of mind or for the way that our day would go, where desire uh, can derail us in ways that sometimes are quite difficult and ornery to deal with, things related to food or relationship or stuff. So um, I realize that I plan to give a 40-minute talk, which will bring us all the way to the end without any q and I hope that you don't get totally bored with this because I'm not very good at calculating times. Um, one of the really good methods of working with the tendency to give in to desires is to, I learned this from a um, Stanford study, to resolve to do something, uh, just some small thing differently. So it might be um, opening doors with your non-dominant hand. And what it does is it makes you aware of what you're about to do. And then you also resolve to do something that's a little bit more difficult or different. Um, and it's said that if people who do this like little exercise can often find themselves aware of being just about to slip into other uh, kinds of desires that they weren't aware of the slipping before and are able to um, make a choice differently about what they really want to be doing with time, energy, body, relationship, speech, wishing, you know, like words that you wish you didn't use quite so often, something like that. Or even placing a small dish of um, candy or something where you can see it and telling yourself that you can eat other candy, but you won't eat anything out of that jar of jelly beans, supposedly can help create this effect. But generally for desires, it seems that sort of pulling back and taking yourself out of it a little bit and actually making a plan um, is what's helpful, sort of pull back and reset. The second hindrance I'd like to talk about again in sort of practical terms is the angry one. And in the set of comparisons, it's when the water gets boiling hot so that actually it's the heat or the boiling or the possible injury that um, becomes important about the water, not the fact that it's clear and something that you might need to support your life like Satyu is. The burning heat of disliking or fear um, and this is also a kind of biological thing, just as say, like in my example about the fire pit, not wanting to burn the grass is actually maybe a nice thing. Um, there are times when we are really in danger and we might need to be ready to fight back or to run. And if we look at this 
biologically, this mind state and this psychophysical evolutionary state have a way that they create a kind of tunnel vision where we get really focused on just the problem that's in our life. Like the thing that so-and-so said to me yesterday and how hard that was to hear, how I wish that they hadn't reacted that way and how much time we might spend just on that. In the fight or flight or biological imperative, we, um, you know, our mind just focuses on the threat and has us, wants us to do what we need to do to get away from it or to resolve it. Again, um, it can be important to pull back and see it for what it is, to see the tendency to get obsessive about fixing things or something like that, or to just recycle the um, difficult experience in mind as if recycling it was going to soothe us. There's a terrible image in Tibetan Buddhism of a dog that um, starts kind of chewing on its own mouth and then the blood, it bites itself and then the blood comes and it starts to bite itself more, which is a little bit how I feel when I'm thinking about things that I have felt were harmful for me. And it's really important to me in this to have a great deal of compassion for the mind and heart when it comes into this place. When it comes into the place of obsession, when you felt someone talking down to you or, um, and then when they apologize, they apologize in some like crummy way that <laughs> just makes you even more wrong. Like, I'm sorry if you felt that way. Let's just not talk about it anymore or something like that. And it, it doesn't feel good sometimes. But there are times when knowing that being in certain relationships in certain ways don't, doesn't feel good is very important information for us. It may mean that we uh, don't want to engage in that way with that person or that group. Um, it may be that some of what we feel is the healthy and wholesome emotion of feeling a little bit of ashamed of how we may have behaved in the conversation before. So there are times when a little bit staying in those experiences of unpleasantness uh, with an open heart, with humility can be important. Sometimes it's important to pull ourselves away from the tunnel vision, both the tunnel, the kind of glomming on that desire might give and the tunnel vision of um, just thinking about the bad side of someone and look at the downside of the thing that we desire or look at the good points of the situation that is causing us pain because we can get very riveted and even um, traumatized by our own minds or our own difficult experiences. And the recommendation, especially if there's trauma, is to really try to find a way um, to pull out of it and look at something or pay attention to um, or feel safer or find ways of experiencing your own wholeness um, rather than recycling that information. Now I could, have, could give a whole talk about this, 
But if it's possible to just be aware when we're in a hindrance with deeper sati, you'll be noticing over time that your mind becomes a lot more skillful and discerning all on its own. And that solutions kind of arise, that letting go arises, or that different kinds of um, options sort of start to appear. And this is an expression of our potential as awakened beings. Even when we see ourselves kind of chewing on the pain and more compassion arises, and then maybe compassion arises for this wobbly world and how many of us uh, find ourselves in these situations. If it's not like a, you know, sine qua non or a complete riveted if only if, but in order to understand the suffering of other people, understanding our own suffering can be really helpful. You know, being able to see ourselves and what we go through, that we haven't lost our integrity or our validity because we may have greed or because we may have hatred or because we may be in distress. That also allows us to offer the same kind of presence to someone else. So the first two hindrances of craving and um, anger or disliking, apparently it's said in the text that if you can uproot those two, the other three are, are not a problem anymore. So um, they're quite fundamental. And if you extrapolate from the pain that they may cause us, pain and harm in our own life, and think about them globally, think about that so much of these hindrances are part of the human mind. We might motivate ourselves to uh, work with them a little bit more diligently from here on. I'd like to just um, be a little more efficient in talking about sloth and torpor. Udhaka um, kukucha, which is kind of anxiety, worry, fretting and doubt. These three are together as um, the hindrances that are based in delusion um, as a category. So the first two are kind of the, the pushing and pulling in the mind. Sloth and torpor is kind of kinesthetically a sinking feeling of heaviness. And we sort of might feel that we're overcome by a situation or that there's nothing we can do about it. I'd like to say that um, many of us could use more sleep in our lives and use more rest in our lives. So not all sloth and torpor is bad. If we don't get enough sleep or enough rest, it's harder to cope with um, all the other things that we have to cope with. But one of the ways that I expand upon sloth and torpor in my own mind is sometimes um, it can start to feel like there's a kind of despair in the mind, like the troubles of the world are so overwhelming that my own engagement or the troubles in my mind are so overwhelming that my engagement isn't worth it. And it's like my mind doesn't even want to connect with what's going on. In the metaphors of um, or similes about the hindrances, sloth and torpor is compared to um, 
water that has algae growing over it. Um, so it's sort of covered up with something unpleasant. Well, maybe algae isn't always unpleasant, but still. Or the other one is that um, the mind is kind of like a prisoner. It's kind of really caught in something. And for this, um, discerning it is good. Wondering about whether your energy is imbalanced for some reason because of too much eating or not enough sleeping can be good. Um, bringing some kind of light, whether real or metaphorical, into our mind, like rousing some of the energy of hope or realizing that if I uh, ask a friend for some support or even connect with a friend to help me do the thing or even go for a walk or go outside. I was walking um, today and I saw that people have put benches outside their houses now. It's warm enough in Massachusetts and people are kind of wanting to have a wholesome mental state by enjoying the out of doors. I see, you know, the fresh air and the refreshment of the out of doors. The next hindrance of anxiety or stress, lack of, lack of tranquility in the mind is compared to water that's kind of um, whipped up by the wind. So you can't really uh, see the clarity. And again, there's so many of us who feel um, pervasively at times, worry, um, anxiety, stress, whether it's about how we're doing. It's a big human question, like, how am I doing? Even we do this in meditation. Um, or other things like just knowing that the foundation of our life may be shaky or that the health of a loved one might be declining and we don't know what is going to come at us next or our own health may have that. Um, I've had some struggles myself with a type of having what feels like having too much energy. And I genu genuinely have made some progress over the last few years with practice and yoga and herbs and even the invitation not to tell myself to be calm, but to be calmer. Um, and I feel quite a lot of um, openness in my schedule by design has helped because I think one of the reasons why we get so agitated is because a lot of us are working all the time or feel like we should be working all the time. And we've been invaded by sort of the samsaric system that makes us feel like we have to be producing or doing. And um, I think we have to resist it, just saying. Now, you may not agree, and I really do invite you to disagree with anything that I say or not like it. Um, one thing that I find helpful with this type of restlessness is to remember my uh, embodied awareness. It grounds, it's grounding. And the simile of um, this is someone who's a slave, which is also kind of a terrible uh, historical problem, but uh, when the mind is just chained to its impulsivity and driven to correct every little situation that it passes by. Um, it's a very painful state. So 
gentling your schedule, good conversation, friendship, not keeping it to yourself. Um, trying to find some spaces of rest and letting go and remembering that there's value in rest and letting go. So the last one, uh, doubt. The translation literally from Pali is the desire to know. And it's funny um, about that because what it, it tends to mean just kind of getting up in your head a bit, like, is the Buddha really enlightened? Um, what does this mean? And we, when we stop trusting the path or we maybe have had a um, disappointment in someone who was like a spiritual mentor to us and it makes us wonder whether the, any of the path is worth it or stuff like that. Um, because we're almost out of time, I'll just say that um, trusting in the experiential part of our life can be really important, just coming back to the here and now, seeing how much um, of doubt is in our mind. So really, there's only one state in a way, which is the state of being present, and it's the one that we're constantly straying from. I like to remember that even when we sort of have strayed, we can't really stray from our basic nature. When we start to feel moments of being free from the hindrances, there's such a relief, such a sense of possibility. So I encourage us all to um, practice with them. I've enjoyed preparing for the talk in practical ways because I find that the more I pay attention to hindrances and invite them into awareness, the more liberations from their naturally arising I've found. <laughs> so it's been actually great. Um, okay, that's it. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.